Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jacob Fenston, in for Rebecca Shear. And this week, we're bringing you a show we're calling The 51st State or The Last Colony. If we think of what the word colony means technically, D.C. would qualify. I mean, it's, it's certainly a... It's not a misnomer. We are the last colony. It's a, it's a fact. We are. I guess you can't fight it. We are one of the last colonies. Didn't we fight a revolution over the concept of us being a colony and being taxed without representation? Forty years ago this month, Washingtonians watched as a new mayor and city council were inaugurated for the very first time under a new system called Home Rule. Inauguration Day. Uh, inauguration Day, 1975. It was very cold. I remember that. Today, citizens in D.C. are used to choosing their own mayor and city council. But we still don't have full representation in Congress. And the dream of turning the district into a state remains just that, a dream. So for the next hour, we'll look at the city's long-running struggle for sovereignty and how that struggle continues to shape city politics. First, we start with the story of how D.C. won home rule. Much of that story takes place not here in the District of Columbia, but hundreds of miles away in Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, the Deep South. For me, the home rule story starts uh, with my involvement with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement of the 60s. That's Walter Fauntroy, who would become D.C.'s first delegate to Congress since the 19th century. As a young man, Fauntroy became close friends with Martin Luther King Jr. Here, he's speaking to a Washington Times reporter for a 1982 oral history project. I used to tell Dr. King that we would not be free to govern ourselves in the District of Columbia until black people were free in the South to register and vote. All types of conniving methods are still being used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. That's King speaking in Washington in 1957. So our most urgent request to the President of the United States is to give us the right to vote. I think the most significant day for home rule in the district came on August the 6th, 1965. Today is a triumph for freedom as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. I sat in the East Room of the White House with Martin Luther King Jr. and watched Lyndon Johnson sign a piece of paper. That piece of paper was the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It paved the way for millions of black voters in the South to register, and it opened the door for D.C. residents to eventually cast ballots as well. When we left the White House that afternoon, Martin Luther King Jr., myself, Ralph Abernathy, We went up to uh, 14th and U Streets, and we started a march for home rule, straight down 14th Street and over to the White House. The next year, President Johnson took up the fight for home rule. Detroit was burning, Houston was burning, L.A. was burning. Bernard Demchuk is a local historian. He moved to D.C. in the 1960s and has been involved in one way or another in local politics ever since. He says those riots in the mid-1960s led Lyndon Johnson to say, We need some self-government, particularly African-American government. Otherwise, they're going to burn Washington, D.C. down. By the end of that decade, D.C. was about 70 percent black. This really was a civil rights issue. But President Johnson didn't get home rule, and Washington did burn. Sterling Tucker was president of the Washington Urban League at the time. I remember that night as I came into Washington, how the sky was in flames. That night was April 4, 1968. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated in Memphis. Tucker says before King's death, 
many D.C. residents didn't see home rule as such a pressing issue. Many people worked in the government, and they had steady, sure jobs. And uh, they uh, therefore didn't quite see the need and they didn't understand the value of having the vote. Still, there were tensions simmering. There were tensions all over the country and their tensions were felt here. And then upon the death of Martin Luther King, then it, it all exploded. Riots devastated the city and dozens of others across the country. In the 50 states, African Americans could take their grievances from the streets to the polls. When we started to win battles, we went out and elected mayors. We elected city council persons. We elected members of Congress. Ron Dellums was one of those members of Congress, an activist elected with the help of newly empowered black voters. I was the radical guy from Berkeley when I first came here. In the South, activists registered more than two million voters in the four years after the Voting Rights Act was signed in 1965. In 1971, since Reconstruction, the largest group of African Americans were elected to Congress. So we ended up with 13 of us. Now they're 40 some, but back then, 13. Wow. Part of that group and the newly formed Congressional Black Caucus was Walter Fauntroy, elected as D.C.'s first delegate to Congress. But D.C. residents still couldn't elect their mayor or a local council, and Fauntroy couldn't vote in Congress. But he did have new allies on the Hill, like Congressman Dellums, who was on the House Committee on the District of Columbia. To liberate the District of Columbia was a logical extension of the civil rights movement. Dellums began asking his colleagues on the committee, Did you guys get elected to the United States Congress or did you get elected to the District of Columbia City Council? If the district committee was D.C.'s unelected city council, its unelected and unloved mayor was committee chair John McMillan. The Democrat from South Carolina chaired the committee for more than 20 years. McMillan was a typical Southern lawmaker. He opposed school integration. He voted against the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And in D.C., he thwarted any legislation aimed at self-government. At this point, I then began to implement what I had called the arithmetic of black political power. Fauntroy organized busloads of D.C. residents heading to McMillan's district in South Carolina to register black voters and make the case for home rule and against McMillan. Then he took the campaign to other states in the South. I had a list of about 10,000 people that I had built over the course of about 10 years working in the movement. And I broke them down by congressional district. Fauntroy sent 10,000 letters to contacts in 40 congressional districts. He would make note of everyone who'd written to their congressman, and then he'd track down each of those members on the House floor. Hello, how are you doing? It's Walt Fine, good to see you. I know what you're coming here for. I'm for you. Don't you worry about it. I heard from my constituents. They know the bill is coming up. You can rest assured that, that I'm going to forsake that foolishness that John McMillan was all about. You know, he's passed his time, and I've changed my mind. I'm with you. So that's how we that's how we won, really, uh, the home rule battle. By the end of that year, 1973, the home rule bill was signed into law. A year later, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall swore in D.C.'s first elected mayor in modern times. On January 2nd, 1975, Walter Washington also became one of the first black mayors in the nation. I looked over at uh, Thurgood Marshall and I saw who was swearing me in. And uh, I said, you know, we have come a distance, and we've got a great distance to go. Also sworn in that day, the first elected council, with Sterling Tucker as chair. As I was being sworn in, I was thinking, 
how great it is to be standing at the edge of tomorrow. And I felt the, the rush of adrenaline at the opportunities that were ahead of us and the great challenges. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the dealers honing. Don't need no ticket, you just thank the Lord. Those challenges immediately confronted the new lawmakers, most of whom had never made laws before. Arrington Dixon represented Ward 4. We were all very excited about this new government, which was a real interesting challenge because we had no rules, no procedures. Uh, it was a, almost a, a government that was built from, the, from scratch. And although the city now had an elected local government, that didn't stop members of Congress from trying to circumvent that government. During the very first session after home rule, members of the House and Senate introduced 14 resolutions to overturn local D.C. legislation, including gun control and affirmative action laws. Rebecca Shear has the story of the district's sometimes contentious relationship with Congress. Over the holiday break, many Washingtonians were out of town visiting family or enjoying getaways in balmier climes. But not members of the D.C. Cannabis Campaign, the group behind Initiative 71. That's the measure that would legalize the possession and cultivation of small amounts of marijuana in the district. Hi, is this Micah? Hi, Micah. This is Pancho Kama from the D.C. Cannabis Campaign. You signed up to volunteer at our um, protest in favor of D.C. democracy. Voters in November approved Initiative 71 by more than two to one. But last month, Republicans in Congress inserted a provision into the federal budget that would bar D.C. from spending money to implement the law. Okay, you want me to email you? Have you been to our office? Oh, okay. Hence the campaign's upcoming effort, the protest in favor of D.C. democracy, a 24-7 vigil of sorts outside the Capitol building. As campaign chair Adam Eidinger explains, because a majority of voters ratified the marijuana initiative, the Home Rule Act requires that D.C. Council Chair Phil Mendelson send the bill up to Capitol Hill for congressional review. Once Congress gets to review the initiative, we have to start a vigil to show that there are people who are watching and that, that they can't just overturn an election. Like, we're just not going to let it happen. And we can't let democracy be willy-nilly uh, overturned. But if you ask someone like Johnny Barnes, a lawyer who was chief of staff to Walter Fauntroy, D.C.'s first non-voting delegate to Congress, he'll tell you it wouldn't be the first time the federal government meddled in D.C.'s affairs. Congress would tell us for any reason, for no reason, arbitrarily, capriciously, even whimsically, And I'm talking about after home rule. They would try to tell us how to live and tell us how to die. Under home rule, Congress can veto every law approved by D.C. voters or D.C. government. And it's used to this veto power on everything from abortion spending to gun control. They, I say, tell us how to live and tell us how to die. Our council passed a euthanasia bill and Congress debated it. So they've always interfered. Which Barnes feels is pretty ironic, given the language in the Home Rule Act's very first paragraph. It says, to relieve the Congress of the burden of legislating for the District of Columbia. That was the stated purpose. And to some extent, that did happen, says political science professor Michael Fauntroy, Walter's nephew. Congress does not have to bog itself down in all kinds of local minutiae that they previously did. I mean, everything from trash pickup to schools. However, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution 
grants Congress all authority in all matters whatsoever. And so that's the sort of backstop for all of this. Fontenoy wrote extensively about home rule in his 2003 book, Home Rule or House Rule, Congress and the Erosion of Local Governance in the District of Columbia. What does that mean to you, home rule or house rule? At some level, the people who make our decisions are elected by us, but those decisions can be undone by people who aren't elected by us. And the main motivation for such undoing, Fontenoy says? It's almost always purely political. Because they have an opportunity to use local issues to grandstand for their constituents back home. But congressional interference goes beyond using D.C. as a free vote to further one's political agenda, says economist Alice Rivlin, a former presidential budget director and current fellow at the Brookings Institution. For instance, Congress must approve D.C.'s budget. And it complicates the job of running the city. Because, for one thing, the city has to start its fiscal year when the federal government does. The 1st of October, maybe later, because the Congress is often late on approving budgets. Whereas the norm for states is the 1st of July. And the main reason is the states and localities uh, run school systems. And school systems start the end of August, and they need to know what their budget is. Speaking of budgets, Rivlin got to know D.C.'s budget intimately. She chaired the District of Columbia Financial Control Board, which Congress created in 1995 when D.C. was facing a deficit of more than $700 million. The control board was uh, very unpopular in much of the city. It was viewed as federal interference with local affairs, which was exactly what it was. And it was seen as an extension of uh, congressional power over the city. By 2001, Rivlin says, the board's oversight of city finances had turned things around, and the group disbanded after D.C. balanced its fourth consecutive budget. Though technically, the board could come back. If the city got into serious trouble again, we would not have to do what we had to do in 1995 and get a new law passed. The law is there, and the Congress and the president could simply activate it. Most agree that's unlikely, since the same legislation that established the control board also created the position of chief financial officer, giving someone direct control over day-to-day financial operations of each district agency. But the point is, in so many ways, if D.C. looks over its shoulder, Congress is there. Or the way Adam Eidinger sees it after what's happened with Congress blocking Initiative 71, no matter which way D.C. looks, Congress is there. I had so many people tell me they registered to vote for the first time in Washington, D.C. because of this initiative. We've been like racking our brains what to do. What can we do? You know, we feel so powerless. Newly elected D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser says she plans to help. In an appearance on NBC's Meet the Press, she announced the city will explore every option to ensure Initiative 71 is enacted. I'm Rebecca Shear. Rebecca also worked with local playwrights to produce an audio play for this show, a Metro Connection first. It's called The State of Statehood, and you can find it on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, home rule or home fool? I think home rule was the right place at the right time because it was all we could get. Uh, But I've never felt that it was the end-all, be-all. We'll talk with people who say D.C.'s current system of self-government is incomplete at best. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. 
WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're commemorating four decades of home rule in Washington, D.C., with a show we're calling The 51st State or The Last Colony. Taxation without representation. Time to end our colonial reservations. That's a voting rights jingle from the 1980s, part of a campaign led by D.C. delegate Walter Fauntroy for full voting rights in Congress. Fauntroy used to joke, I'm the baddest dude on Capitol Hill because I represent more people. Today, as then, D.C.'s 650,000 residents have no one representing them in the Senate and just one person speaking but not voting on their behalf in the House. The official titles for one in my position are delegate and congresswoman. I may not be called representative because I do not have the vote on the House floor. I met with Eleanor Holmes Norton in her office, where one wall is covered with framed black and white photos. These are pictures of old Washington, and this is a very valued picture. It's of D.C. residents marching on the mall for home rule. Home rule now. Uh, D.C. wants home rule now. Here is a woman sitting uh, in a congressional hearing with a sign saying, D.C. last colony. That sign could be raised today. Just this week, Norton fought and lost a battle to give herself a vote in the Committee of the Whole, meaning she could participate in some floor votes. It's a privilege she's had off and on since the early 90s. It should be noted that whenever Democrats have been in power, I have that right to vote on the House floor. And when they are not in power, the Republicans typically take it away. Can you talk about partisanship in um, the effort to expand uh, autonomy for the District of Columbia? At least since the 1950s, Democratic and Republican presidents, whether you're talking Truman or Eisenhower, in their State of the Union speeches, asked for the district to be given home rule. Somehow it was so clearly un-American that it had no partisan taint to it. Yes, there is some kind of partisanship even around home rule, but nothing like what you see when it comes to statehood. Statehood means real power. It means you have senators. Uh, It means that the Congress has no control whatsoever uh, over the district, and that is something that some have been reluctant to give up. You have a unique position in Congress, and I'm, I'm curious how your thoughts about you know, being the only representative in this, um, our national legislature representing more than half a million people? Well, I feel, uh, <laughs> I feel my role as, as unique largely when I have to fight for things uh, my colleagues take for granted. Most of the time, I don't feel unique at all. When I walked in that door in 1990, I said, I am going to act like I have my full rights and going to dare them to take them from me. This really came from the civil rights movement, from growing up in D.C., uh, where you were always looking to overcome segregation here. So I don't feel it when I go in, into on the House floor to speak. I don't feel it in, in committees where I've headed uh, subcommittees. 
I don't feel it in leadership posts that my colleagues uh, elect me to. I feel it when, then when it's time to go to the House floor to vote on something. I feel it when I see people voting on District of Columbia matters and the only member who can't vote on that D.C. matter, like the D.C. budget, is the member elected from the District of Columbia. That's when I feel it. That was D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton. Congresswoman Norton has pushed through incremental victories during her 24 years in office, winning but also losing a vote in the Committee of the Whole, getting a hearing on the statehood bill, fending off congressional intervention. But some D.C. residents say we'll always be second-class citizens until the district becomes a state And that sentiment isn't new. Martin Ostermuel brings us the story of activists who in the 1970s opposed home rule because they said it wasn't enough. In October 1973, just two months before Congress passed the bill granting D.C. an elected mayor and council, Sam Smith, a local journalist, wrote an article in the D.C. Gazette, his monthly newspaper, titled, What If We Get It? Smith wrote of the coming era of home rule not as a time to celebrate, but rather as a cause for concern. Home rule legislation will give local politicians enough of the substance and trappings of power, including the official imprimatur of the governed, to deflate the drive to achieve equality with other Americans for Washingtonians. Candidates, media, and the business community will undoubtedly unite in telling Washingtonians that whatever it is you wanted, you got it. Now stop complaining. That's Smith talking with me from his home in Maine, where he's lived since 2009. When Smith wrote those words, he was part of a small group of residents who belonged to the D.C. statehood party, which had been founded three years earlier, largely in response to another article Smith wrote calling for the district to become the 51st state. Here's Smith again. We were meeting in the basement of a church on Capitol Hill to talk about Julius Hobson running for non-voting delegate. This is 1970. And um, Julius... uh, said, well, what's our platform I going to run on? And somebody in the room, I don't know who it was, mentioned my article, and Julius picked up on it. And in 15 minutes, he said, that's what I'm going to run on. And I was totally stunned. Julius Hobson was a civil rights leader and member of the city's elected school board and ran for a number of offices as a member of the new statehood party. He was also one of the loudest opponents of the Home Rule Bill as it was being debated by Congress. To Hobson and other members of the small party, Home Rule was a sellout. We used to characterize it as home fool. That's Lou Aronica, one of the original members of the statehood party. He says they opposed home rule because it left Congress the opportunity to veto local laws. Only statehood, he says, would truly offer D.C. the equality it had been denied for so long. We are the union of the several states. And the only way we can be dealt in is by becoming or being part of a state. There are no asterisks. And the deal always offered D.C. was one of an asterisk, with the impression or the uh, illusion that somehow or another this was going to be uh, a good thing for us. And we pretty well concluded that we would be an orphan, and orphans aren't treated too well. Despite the party's loud advocacy for statehood, the Home Rule Bill passed, compromises and all. Hobson took the loss in stride. He won a seat on the newly elected D.C. Council, where he continued fighting for statehood until his death in 1977. In the years since, many of the Home Rule Bill's flaws have become clear. Congress still interferes in D.C., especially on hot-button social issues. 
the city's budget still has to go to the Hill for approval, periodically leaving the D.C. government at risk of closure when partisan fights derail budget negotiations. But for many in the movement, home rule is better than nothing, which is what D.C. would have gotten had it fought for statehood 40 years ago. I don't think that was a sellout. I think that was an effort on the part of people to try to move the ball forward. That's Ron Dellums, a former Democratic congressman from California, who in 1971 introduced a statehood bill in the House. What would would have been the alternative? To stay in this sort of plantation mode until someday we would get statehood. Well, that would have meant that we would have still been in that posture 40-some years. I think home rule was the right place at the right time because it was all we could get. Julius Hobson Jr. splits with his father on this very point. Home rule, he concedes, was a compromise that left much to be desired. But he says its shortcomings have helped make the case for the statehood his father fought for. I've never felt that it was the end-all, be-all. We've had a lot of movement towards statehood as more people realize that what we have now is insufficient. That, of course, raises the question, what would it take to get statehood? Hobson says it's easier than many would assume. What the Constitution says is Congress will have jurisdiction over the nation's capital not to exceed 10 miles square, which is what we used to be because we had Alexandria until 1846. So nothing says that Congress can't shrink that square mileage down to the federal triangle and let the rest be a state. That's exactly what a bill introduced in Congress in 2013 would do, shrink the federal district and turn the rest of the city into the state of New Columbia. Last September, a Senate committee debated the idea, the first time statehood had been discussed on Capitol Hill in 20 years. I'm Martin Ostermule. What do you think? Should D.C. be aiming for statehood or something else? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at wamumetro. Over the years, D.C.'s push for statehood and the more limited goal of full voting rights in Congress have come in the midst of some pretty big corruption scandals for city government. And those headlines haven't made it any easier for the city to be taken seriously by the powers that be on Capitol Hill. District reporter Patrick Madden has this look at how controversy has shaped and perhaps hamstrung the city's relations with Congress. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, Congresswoman, I just want to thank you for calling us all here today. It's day one of the Bowser administration, and the new mayor is on Capitol Hill. She's holding a press conference with D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton. It's about voting rights, statehood, and how Bowser's new administration, with its mantra of a fresh start, will be able to play ball with Congress. I do think that we have an opportunity, a new look, a fresh start, um, to, and that's how I, I approach these relationships, not taking any baggage, um, but starting fresh. The implication is clear. This administration doesn't have the same baggage as the old one, and that baggage is a long-running federal investigation into D.C. government corruption. It's a story almost as old as home rule in the district. This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. Good evening. Marion Barry tonight delegated many of his duties as mayor of the nation's capital, but did not resign. And our breaking news at this hour is a prison sentence for former D.C. Council member Michael Brown. 
Breaking now at five, D.C.'s mayor fights back as a D.C. corruption scandal reaches new heights. Over the years, district politicians have made headlines for all the wrong reasons. Bowser says her administration will be a break from the past. But will that matter on Capitol Hill? Even Bowser won't say so directly. Mayor Bowser, on that point you just made, do you think D.C. has a better chance of achieving more power on Capitol Hill under an administration that isn't under the the shadow of a federal investigation? And and do you think that's fair? I I couldn't speculate on on that. What I I would say is that um, I have a responsibility for the residents of the District of Columbia to work with all of the elected officials um, here. I try asking again, but Bowser won't budge. Here's why. People don't threaten to take away Illinois' two seats each time a governor is sent to prison. No one is calling for Virginia to lose its vote in Congress because of former Governor Bob McDonnell, who's now heading to prison for up to two years. So many in Washington say it's a double standard for D.C. to be denied voting rights because of the ethical lapses of its office holders. And if you really want to get a rise out of district politicians, ask them whether their scandal has had an impact on D.C.'s push for statehood. Here's then-Mayor Vincent Gray last month. I'm not going to spend my time you know, talking about that in light of home rule. Go to go to the 50 other states and see what you find. People don't have to be squeaky anything. You know, the Constitution uh, has certain rights that are uh, are provided to people who live in, in this nation, and we ought to be able to enjoy those rights just like anybody else. But longtime political observers like NBC4 reporter Tom Sherwood say there's no question D.C.'s scandal-plagued reputation has made the uphill push for voting rights that much steeper. Whether it's fair or not, scandal hurts the city's position on Capitol Hill. A lot of people don't even know much about the city except what they see in the media. And what do they see in the media? They saw Marion Barry arrested at the Vista Hotel. They've seen three council members in the last few years uh, be convicted and resign in disgrace. They've seen a mayor under investigation for four years. Scandal hurts this city because it's not well thought of to begin with. And that means D.C. has to work a lot harder than other jurisdictions, according to Alice Rivlin of the Brookings Institution. It's not a defense to say we're not much worse than any other place. I don't think we are. But we have to be better because we have to convince the Congress that this is a responsible, well-run city, which I believe it mostly is. And that is necessary to take the next steps toward autonomy. And taking those steps to more autonomy and statehood won't be easy. There are constitutional hurdles and political barriers, namely Republicans' fears that two Senate seats for D.C. would be automatic gains for the Democrats. Many political observers think those challenges could take a while to address. So in the meantime, D.C.'s new mayor is trying to work on the other big obstacle, the city's reputation for scandal, even if she won't quite say so directly. I'm Patrick Madden. In a minute, a rumble with Republicans, the role of the GOP in D.C.'s quest for voting rights and statehood. You need somebody not just that will vote with you, but somebody that will die for you. And uh, the city didn't have that. They didn't have voting representation. It's coming your way as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5.
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jacob Fenston. In this week for Rebecca Shear, today we're delving deep into D.C.'s struggle for political autonomy with a show we're calling The 51st State or The Last Colony. It is The Last Colony. (laughs) We've been called that a lot over the years. We have a Congress or a Parliament that can impose its will on us whenever they want to. We are not only being taxed, but per capita, we pay the highest taxes of any Americans. All of that without representation. So I think we technically fit the definition of colony. And many people blame that colonial status on Republicans in Congress. But as Hans Anderson tells us, Republicans' views on D.C. have historically been a bit more complicated than you might think. Nelson Ryman Snyder ran for House delegate against Eleanor Holmes Norton last year. He lost. When you ask him about his future plans... I will not be running again. Unless the Koch brothers uh, finance my campaign. (laughs) It's very hard for Republicans to raise any money in this town. Ryman Snyder, as you now likely know, is a Republican. He's lived in D.C. for 30-plus years. When I met him, the first thing we did was go to his garage. Inside, it looks like a room in the National Archives, except we're both wearing coats because there's no heating, and you can hear the garbage truck backing up in the alley. The shelves are bending under the weight of congressional reports and voting records, much of it about home rule. Ryman Snyder does a lot of research about D.C. home rule, including the seminal moment in 1973 when Congress passed the act granting the city a form of self-rule. The Republicans on the committee in the House were very interested in it. The local Republican Party has always supported having a governor and a legislative assembly and so testified at the time. As a resident and Republican... Ryman Snyder wants D.C. to have more power. He isn't the only one. President Nixon took a first-hand look at what's happening these days to the city in which he lives. It was a pet project of his. Pet project. That's Don Santorelli. He worked for President Richard Nixon while putting together the justice system in D.C. Home rule came about under Nixon, a Republican. The reason? He was excited about doing something that was good that was good government. I mean, this is true of him in the way he looked at the federal government, too. How do we make good government? In the first months of his presidency, Nixon charged Congress with passing legislation on home rule. There had been a number of votes on the issue. Almost all of them had died in the House committee overseeing the District of Columbia after passing the Senate. That changed when Representative Charles Diggs, an African-American Democrat from Michigan, became chair of the committee. Diggs, unlike his predecessor, committee chairman John McMillan, supported home rule. The legislation passed shortly thereafter with bipartisan support. And some Republicans still support more rights for D.C. You know, I was the chief advocate for giving the city a vote in Congress. That's former Representative Tom Davis. He was a Republican from Virginia's 11th district from 1995 to 2008. Never made sense to me that the capital of the free world shouldn't have a vote in the U.S. Congress. Davis introduced a bill that would give D.C. a vote in the House. He only had 23 Republicans supporting that effort. And that's where the Republicans came up short of the stick, because it's a Democratic city, and understandably, the way politics is played, you don't want to just give the other side a vote. Of course, that's about voting representation, not social issues. If you want to talk about D.C.'s recent marijuana legalization effort, which Republicans in Congress blocked... Voting on it in the House floor, how do you go back to a conservative constituent and say, oh, I allowed marijuana to be used? So, you know, I get it. I get the politics of it. And that's just the latest in a series of fights between the city and Congress. Well, unfortunately, the the Republicans do, you know, 
come out with a lot of riders. Nelson Ryman Snyder again. We'll have them on abortion and some other subjects. Uh, you know, they're always trying to meddle in, the, uh, in our gun laws. Ryman Snyder doesn't care for that type of meddling. But he also believes D.C. has to be realistic in its efforts. The future of D.C. representation isn't in statehood, he says. Other alternatives should be tried. He wants a constitutional amendment to give D.C. votes in the House and Senate. Until that amendment passes, he wants to end federal tax collection in D.C., something he believes has support from both sides of Congress. All the rights that we've gotten have been incremental, and they've been bipartisan. Bipartisan's a key. We don't, we don't get anything without bipartisan support. Of course, he wants a D.C. Republican in the House to prove that the city can be bipartisan. He's waiting for the political tides to turn in that direction. In the meantime, he'll be winterizing his garage full of archives. I'm Hans Anderson. Should the District of Columbia be the nation's 51st state? That question was put to D.C. voters on November 4, 1980. 60% voted to create a convention to write a constitution for the 51st state. Well, it was important because it let people see that they had, when mobilized, they had some power. Statehood activist Charles Cassell was elected chairman of the convention, which spent three months determining how the new state would be governed. Yes, we studied the constitutions of the other uh, 50 states. Voters approved the Constitution in 1982, but it went nowhere in Congress. One provision that is still in effect is the creation of a shadow delegation to lobby for statehood on Capitol Hill. Lauren Ober brings us the story of two members of that delegation. The Congressional Auditorium at the U.S. Capitol was filled Tuesday night with Hispanic members of Congress and their supporters. They were there to get sworn in to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. A federal judge from California did the honors. I'm going to ask you to raise your right hands and repeat after me. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. But one U.S. representative was not up on the stage. That was Washington, D.C.'s newly elected shadow representative, Franklin Garcia. Now, as a Latino elected official, Garcia would be entitled to participate in the ceremonial swearing-in. That is, if the district actually had real voting representation in Congress. But because D.C.'s shadow congressional delegation doesn't actually have the rights and privileges enjoyed by colleagues from other jurisdictions, like voting or a government salary, Garcia had to sit this one out. We're here at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus uh, swearing-in ceremony, and you're on the sidelines. How are you feeling about that? Well, it's a little bit disappointing, but I understand it because I think the position has been elevated. At this point, I understand it. I mean, they don't understand. They don't know, you know, that we even have a shadow delegation. A lot of them don't. And so this is the work that I was elected to do, to bring more visibility to the position. Garcia is one of the district's three shadow members of Congress. His counterparts on the Senate side are Paul Strauss, who has held the position since 1996, and Michael D. Brown, who was elected in 2007. All are charged with one singular mandate to lobby the U.S. Congress for full voting rights for the District of Columbia. Strauss explains that the term shadow comes from the British Parliament. The shadow term in parliamentary politics means an official in waiting. 
in the case of the shadow senators, when your state is admitted, those senators become seated and sworn senators. And that tradition continued as recently as the territory of Alaska, who in 1956 elected two shadow senators and a shadow U.S. representative as part of their efforts to get stated. The idea of a shadow delegation can be confusing. Members get titles, but not offices on the Hill. They can mill around the Capitol, but they can't go on the floor and vote. They can eat in the members' dining rooms, and they do get special license plates, but most people don't even know their positions exist. But they do and have since 1990. Here's a fun fact. The Reverend Jesse Jackson was D.C.'s first shadow senator. He held the position for five years before Strauss took over the role as one of the district's top lobbyists for statehood. Of the 12 shadow senators in United States history that preceded the District of Columbia's delegation, all of them eventually achieved statehood for their territory. So that continues to be the goal. Often those efforts lasted decades. It took Alaska 47 years to achieve statehood. While this has been a frustrating effort, if you count the hundreds of years of city disenfranchisement, if you take it in line with more active pursuits of statehood, which didn't really begin until the 70s and 80s, then we're not so far behind other states and territories. Over the past few years, D.C. statehood advocates have really ramped up their messaging both in the district and beyond. Strauss even enlisted the help of some celebrities like Mario Van Peebles to spread the word in advance of last year's D.C. statehood bill in Congress. Here's one of the public service announcements they filmed. Now, growing up, I thought taxation without representation was tyranny. But for residents of the District of Columbia, it's reality. And that's wrong. Every American citizen deserves equal rights. D.C. residents serve in the military, pay full federal taxes, and serve our country in so many ways. And that's why I support statehood for the District of Columbia. If you believe every American should have equal rights, tell your senator to support D.C. statehood. Do it. But it isn't that simple. D.C.'s shadow delegation has an even steeper climb ahead of it in the coming years since there are now Republican majorities in both the House and the Senate. The District of Columbia has lost some of its best champions in the Senate. Senators friendly to the idea of D.C. statehood, Mary Landrieu of Louisiana, Mark Begich of Alaska, and Tom Harkin of Iowa were all ousted from their seats. People like that are gone from the Senate this year, replaced with Republicans who are very, very hostile. Franklin Garcia knows the battle for D.C. statehood will be uphill for the next two years, but he's undeterred. I think there's progress um It's, you know, highs and lows, but uh, we're very uh, determined to make it happen. And maybe if statehood is achieved, Garcia could join his fellow Latino lawmakers on the stage as a real voting member of their caucus. I'm Lauren Ober. People died for the right to vote for the candidate that they like. So now shouldn't you feel ashamed to say, I won't be voting this election day. Don't cost you nothing to register. Get to the polls and make your voice heard. The race ain't over. Don't give up hope. Get registered and get out to vote. We'll end today's show by asking, what next? I put together a few notes. I want to begin with this. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson speaking at a recent ceremony for the Home Rule 40th anniversary. Reflect on this for a moment. It started with the ratification of the 23rd Amendment to the Constitution. In the 13 years between 1960 and 1973, D.C. residents gained the right to vote for president, for a delegate to Congress, and for a long list of local officials. And as much as we've been trying in the 40 years since... 
While we've made some gains, there's still, um, that's still quite a record that has yet to be matched. Thirteen years of rapid change, then 40 years of not much change. So what would it take to make the next big step and add that 51st star to the flag, or at least a voting member of Congress? When you were fighting in civil rights before, you were immediately able to sit at the counter. You were able immediately to maybe attend a school in your neighborhood. Now the the things you're fighting for in terms of D.C. and self-determination are less immediate. We have just enough democracy to keep us happy. We can vote for mayor. We can vote for council members. We can vote for school board. And that keeps us happy until we get insulted. And then we have a spurt of activity and then it dies. It's apathy derived from history. It's people who have understand that this cause is 200 years behind schedule. And my response to that is if we get 600,000 people committing five minutes a month to the statehood cause, it'll be an enormous step forward. Remember how we got home rule. We didn't just get home rule. It was very incremental. In one sense, that's insulting, but it was leading toward greater home rule. We have a colonial government and a colonial mindset, and we haven't broken out of that. Those were the voices of former council member Arrington Dixon, historian Bernard Demchuk, statehood activist Josh Birch, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, and someone who may be familiar to our longtime listeners out there, former WAMU political analyst Mark Plotkin. For years, Plotkin has been a relentless advocate for D.C. voting rights and a harsh critic of some local leaders, including Congresswoman Norton. Plotkin spoke with Metro Connections' Tara Boyle. Nothing has changed. Let's not kid ourselves. Nothing has changed. The citizens themselves have to mobilize and stop traffic, engage in civil disobedience and pay the price for it, and rump up the passion. Why are we so appropriate? It's, it's, it's a behavior modification. It was, to me, not political. It's personal, psychological, and sociological. We're being excluded. We're being diminished. We're not part of this democracy. Let's talk about your own personal history. It's, it's um, been a half century since you first came to D.C. to attend George Washington University. Right. Um, when, did, when did you first start getting well, really involved in Well, I think I was this? late. I'll tell you a dirty little secret. <laughs> I was an Illinois voter for a long time because, like Ralph Nader, who is a passionate advocate, why give up my franchise? And then in the mid-70s or late-70s, uh, I got more interested in uh, the place in which I live. So it took me a while. So I don't want to think anybody to think that in 1964, I became this militant uh, radical on this issue. I had worked for some presidential candidates, all of whom lost, and I got more locally uh, centered. And then I ran for office in 1982. Uh, for the city council in wealthy, white, west of the park, Ward 3. I got the quality vote, 18%. (laughs) But even then, you're forcing me to reveal. I remember being asked a question in 82, what about statehood? And I dodged it. I did exactly what I'm accusing citizens. Well, it'll be a long time before we consider it. And then I think when I ran again in 86 and lost again, but it was a lot closer, I think it started uh, building in me that this was not something that was just because of my interest in politics. This was uh, the same form of discrimination 
and elimination and exclusion that ethnic groups had faced. African Americans, you can't stay at this hotel. Why? You're black. Jews, you can't join this uh, country club. I'm Jewish. Irish, going back to the 19th century, Irish need not apply. And I think I've always been, there's a lot wrong with me, but I think what is right with me is I always knew what was fair and what was unfair. And I try to know and act on the difference. This is patently unfair. That was Mark Plotkin speaking with Metro Connections' Tara Boyle. And we want to know, what do you think is the best way forward in D.C.'s fight for full democracy? We're on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at metro at wamu.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Rebecca Shear, Hans Anderson, Lauren Ober, Patrick Madden, Martin Ostermule, and Tara Boyle. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. While you're there, be sure to check out The State of Statehood, Metro Connection's very first audio play written by local playwrights Gwydion Sullivan, Stephen Spotswood, Renee Calarco, Annalisa Diaz, and Kayleen Sinette Jennings. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find information about all the music we play at metroconnection.org. You can also find a link to our free weekly podcast. We're on iTunes and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll go theme-free for one of our occasional Wild Cards editions of the show. We'll meet the residents of one of D.C.'s dwindling number of public housing projects. We'll find out why Maryland lawmakers are gearing up for a big debate over police brutality. And we'll head to the workshop of a world-renowned maker of guitars. You just couldn't keep me away from it, you know. And then when I quit college after a year and a half being a math major, I moved to Annapolis and started a little gear shop making guitars. It's always been that. I'm Jacob Fenston, in this week for Rebecca Shear, here at Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.